Tonight we're looking at Jesus, our hero. We're going to be introduced to the one who has gone before us and is calling us to follow. Hebrews chapter 5, this is part 3 of our study in Hebrews, Leaving Religion. Leaving religion is a call to adventure. As humans, we labor to erect sturdy, safe cathedrals to protect our lives. We want easy, affordable religion, something that doesn't demand too much of us. When Rome's Emperor Nero turned against Christians, Jewish believers found an easy solution, Judaism. As a religion recognized by Rome, joining the synagogue offered safety. But worship, vocation, and God cannot be squeezed into our safe cathedrals. So, Hebrews calls these believers in the book and us into an adventure, something costly but transformative, to journey the long, difficult road of faith. Engaging Jesus' life means departing from religion's cathedral. But now we come to this moment where the speaker gives us the example he's been pointing to all along. He's been calling us into the adventure. Don't be a coward. Come onto the adventure with us. Now it's time to introduce us to our hero, the one who has already gone through the adventure and who is now calling us to walk in his footsteps on this adventure. So he introduces us to Jesus. And that's in 4 verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. In other words, if you're thinking about quitting, don't do that yet. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted or tested is the same word. As we are, and think about their situation, we're being tested and tempted. Hey, Jesus was too. Yet, without sin. So Jesus knows the way through. 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, this is our hero, Jesus, and he's gone through it. He's been tested at every point, yet he didn't fail. He kept on going. He went the distance, and now he has made himself available to us um, in, in Jewish language. This is great high priest, a kind of like foreign concept to us, but to them, this means a helper in the things of God. He's become a helper for us along our journey and in our adventure. Now, before we go into looking at Jesus as our hero, as our great high priest, as our helper in the adventure, we have to stop for a second and put ourselves in the same domain. What is a hero in the first place? And it needs to be understood right now that there is not necessarily continuity between a hero and a famous person. Fame does not make you a hero, and being a hero doesn't always make you famous. So fame and heroicism are not synonymous. So a false hero is somebody who's going to rely on themselves, 
they're very bold, they're very strong, they're very um, rich, maybe wealthy, they've accomplished a lot. We look at people in our celebrity world and say, wow, he won an Oscar hero. He's my hero. You hear that with young people. He's my hero. Or a certain band, the front singer of a band. He's my hero. We're so used to associating fame with heroism. But that's not the same thing. If you will, if if some of you guys have your bulletins handy, I put in them a, a nice lengthy quote. I thought it would be best to just read it. It really gives us the concept of what a true hero looks like. It says this, interestingly, interestingly enough, the classic tradition of a true hero is not our present understanding at all. There is little social matrix to our present use of the word. A hero now is largely about being bold, muscular, rich, famous, talented, or fantastic by himself. Just walks in the room and makes everything better. <laughs> and often... He's fantastic by himself and often for himself. Whereas the classic hero is one who goes the distance, whatever that takes, and then has plenty left over for others. True heroism serves the common good, or it is not really heroism at all. To seek one's own American Idol fame, power, salary, or talent might historically have made one famous or even infamous, but not a hero or heroine. I thought that was so good for us to see that a hero is not necessarily a famous person or an accomplished person. A hero is that person who goes the distance, no matter the cost, for the sake of other people not for the sake of themselves necessarily. And so as we come to this section of Hebrews, and the author is bringing us to a face-to-face introduction with Jesus, as if for the first time, because these people need to be, we need to be courageous. Uh, he says, this is our hero. This is the one who has gone the distance, who's given up all for us. It's Jesus. So this is what makes a hero a hero. One, They're people who had to leave something. They had to leave something. Whether it's their past, a relationship, an identity, a literal home, they had to leave. And in our case, that's leaving your cathedral. That's leaving religion. They have to leave something first. Second, they have to go the distance. They enter into an adventure And it takes them with all kinds of trials and temptations, but they make it through. No matter how hard, even if they fail, they get up and they say, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to climb that mountain. I'm going to make it through that wilderness. I'm going to come. I'm going to get there. They go the distance. They see it through to the end. So a hero leaves something. He goes the distance. But third and finally, and maybe the most important component of all, is that a hero, after going the distance, always returns to help that which he had left. He comes back full circle, but he's different. He's not the same because of the adventure. He's stronger. He sees more sacrificially. He has a mindset for the common good of everyone else. Or maybe in Christian language, he sees God above all else and himself last. 
So a hero, a true hero, leaves something. He goes the distance. Then he returns for the sake of leading, mentoring, and helping. That's a true hero. And that is the understanding of hero that we're introduced to in the person of Jesus tonight. So let me show you a couple verses, then we'll walk our way through the text to give you the sense of Jesus as our hero. Uh, First, did he leave something? Yes, he did. 4 verse 15 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus is one who came from God to become human, and he became so much human, not just in the sense that I have a body, I'm a human. He actually went through the same experiences that we go through. He was tested the way we're tested, tempted with the things we're tempted with. He had the full human experience, so much so that what the author of Hebrews is inviting us into is following this hero who has never gone anywhere that you can't possibly go yourself. He's been there. If you're there, he's been there. He's experienced it. He knows the full spectrum of human fear and sorrow and pain. And so we have someone who's not going to (laughs) say, I sure hope that path leads to a good place. Have fun. He's like, I know where that leads. And listen, it's going to be hard, but hey, you're going to come through it and you're going to see this clearer and you're going to handle this more securely. That's the beauty of a great high priest we have. He left heaven. That was the original cathedral. He left the comfort and security of being next to his father to enter into the, what for him was the unknown. Human flesh and blood. Human weakness and temptation and testing. That is quite a departure. Jesus embarked on one of the greatest adventures ever by leaving that cathedral to come to be with us and live just like us. This is what a priest is. And this is why their language of hero is for us. He's our priest. He's our hero. He's our helper. Because a priest in Israel's religion was always that person who stood before the people and God. He was the middleman, the bridge. He brought the two together. That in the priest, the humans and God would meet together. So that the priest would represent the human problem and needs to God and God would forgive him. And then he would extend that forgiveness to the people and let them know, hey, God says it's all good. This is the direction we're walking now. He was that middle person. He was that helper for their spiritual needs. He was there meshing heaven and earth together, God and man together. That was the priest's duty. And this is what the Hebrew book tells us Jesus is. He is that priest, but not just a priest. He is the great high priest, the best priest of them all. And he's right there walking with us and representing God to us because he's not only the son of God, divinity, but he became a man, humanity. The two meet together right there in him so that God and man are always in unison, not in friction when we're in Jesus. And that's why he's our helper. That's why he's our hero. But he had to leave heaven to come and help us in order to become that. He had a great leaving. Look also at 5 or 7. 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. In the days of his flesh. So there you have it. He came and he took on a human body and walked with us. Second, heroes go the distance. Did Jesus go the distance? Five, verse seven, 
we read, just read, continue to verse 8. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Read that again. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Listen, it, this, the point here isn't to get all like confused and caught up too much in the wording. Like what? Jesus had like earn his deity through obedience? Like this is not the point. The point that the author, if you think the context, his point is to show us Jesus didn't just show up on earth being like, boom, I'm perfectly obedient. He showed up to earth and had to decide moment by moment to choose obedience to the Father. And you remember when the cross was about to come upon him, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he has to pray, God, I really don't want to do this right now. If it was up to me, I'm going to choose a different plan to save the world. But you have asked me to do this, so let your will be done. He had to continually resign himself to the Father's will. He had to learn that obedience, and every step he took, more obedience. And the ultimate display of his obedience to the Father, of his oneness with God, was when he said yes to the cross and took it and didn't cower out when the pain got the worst. Could he have called a legion of angels? He told his disciples he could, but he didn't. Because he said, I must go the distance. I must see this adventure to the end so that I can lead my people when they're called. So he sees it to the end. Look also at 619. It says, we have this, 619, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Okay, what? <laughs> Unless you have taken some Bible classes or have gone through our, you have been here long enough to have gone through Leviticus with us or Exodus, you will know that there was this inner place. The Jews had this tabernacles, this big portable tent. Later it became a, a building called the temple. But uh, it, it went around with them through the wilderness. And God lived in this tent. And the priests worked in this tent. And the people would come to worship God at this tent. And the priests would, you know, their whole bridge thing, right? Between God and the people. Well, there was one special part in this tabernacle in which not even the priests, not even the high priests could go into. It was the inner, inner, inner part. It was called the Holy of Holies. Or here he calls it the... Uh, the inner place behind the curtain. And that's what it was. The perfect cube, it was as long, as wide, as high. And there sat the Ark of the Covenant. God said that that was where I, my throne is on earth. And there was a veil separating him from the priests and the people. And Jesus, we're now, now that we have that image in your mind, we read here that Jesus entered into that inner place behind the curtain. And he went there as a forerunner on our behalf. In other words, our hero went where no one has gone before. And he went into the very presence of God himself, not just to say, ha, I did it. Cool. That was cool. I'm a pretty cool guy, right, everyone? I did it. No, it says that he went there as a forerunner, meaning there are runners behind him. Us. So that this is where we're going. We're going to a place where we will have full access to the Holy of Holies and we will dwell there with God and oneness forever. And Jesus went and was our forerunner and he went the distance. That was the reason for the cross. He went all the way and even made it to the Holy of Holies and he did so to be our forerunner. That's why he went the distance. So yes, so far... He did leave something. He did go the distance, even to the point of death on the cross. We're going to see more of that next week. 
And then third, did Jesus return and give help? Yeah. After he died, he rose from the dead. I'm back. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where we're told that he is making intercession on our behalf. In other words, he's helping us. He's talking to the Father so that he can give us the help we need. And he's, he's, he's giving our needs to the Father back and forth. We read that there in chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, that we come before his throne for grace, help, in a time of need. He has returned, and he's returned as our helper. He is truly, in every sense of the definition, a hero. He left something, he went the distance, and he's returned to give us hope, to give us help, to teach us, to lead us. So we saw that in 4.16. You also see that one more time in 7 verse 25. So flip there real quick, 7.25. This is the last time we're flipping. 7.25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what it means that he's a priest, that he's our hero. He's come back to be our helper so that anyone who draws near to him, he is giving them the help that they need from the resources of the big man himself, if you will. I mean, that's, that's some access, that's some resources, and that's what we get in Jesus. So we have a true hero that we're being introduced to. Now let's take a closer look at this hero in a face-to-face encounter. So Jesus is termed the priest throughout this section. Now, can I see who actually, uh, I hope a lot of people hands, who, who read this prior to coming here, these chapters, five through seven? Yeah, so that's about a quarter of us. I now know how to pray for y'all. <laughs> so God can help you as your helper as you come to scriptures. Like, ah! No, you can do this. But the reason I ask is because this is possibly some of those chapters where it is not for the faint of heart to read. And your poor pastor was studying all week <laughs> these painful chapters. And this is, um, I'm going to do my best to break this down for you with our time. So what we're going to see is that Jesus is a priest. We've already talked about the image of what a priest did, that connection, that bridge between humans and God. The whole argument of these three chapters, five, six, and seven, is simply Jesus is the best priest. There were priests in the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood it's technically called, but Jesus is better than those priests because he came from the lineage of Melchizedek. Melchizedek who? Yes. Melchizedek was also a priest, and he was better than the Levitical priests. So Jesus, listen, it's not like this. It's not like Jesus came as a Levitical priest and happened to work his way to become the best Levitical priest. That would just simply be saying he's the best of the priests that already existed. No, no. What this argument's going to be is that there were the Levitical priests. They are the ones that led Israel in worship. But there's this mysterious figure, which we had John do in our scripture reading before worship, Melchizedek, whom Abraham had an encounter with. He was a priest. And he's of a totally different order than this Levitical order. And Jesus, our author is going to tell us, came from this order. So he's not just better than the Levites, although that's true. He comes from a different way of doing priesthood than the Levites. So part of the argument is going to become, we can now do away with the works-based religion that has kept man away from God for so long because one Levitical order said you must come to him with sacrifices, but this is a new Levitical order that has a different set of rules to work by. 
That's why it's so important that Jesus came not just from Levi, but from a totally different priesthood. Because he, it means he can instill a whole new order and law of priesthood. So that's, in a nutshell, what he's going to argue. So if you don't remember anything else about the verses, remember that. Because that's what it boils down to after hours of reading and thinking and praying. Okay, so... So we saw in 4 verse 14, he's our helper. Chapter 5 then goes into saying this about human priests. This is the Levitical priesthood. For every high priest, and the high priest was simply the leader of all the priests, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. But then it goes on to say, but the problem is they're also sinners themselves, so they have to offer sacrifices for themselves. And this is endless thing, offering sacrifices for them and then yourself and them and then yourself. Uh, But in verse 5, we see that Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him, God, who said to him, Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, this is Psalm 110, verse 4, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. (laughs) So us, we weren't raised in the Old Testament scriptures like this audience was. So we're like, what kind of a verse is that? Couldn't you have found one that simply says, Jesus is the man, follow him, right? Like, what is that? Well, Psalm 110, to those that are steeped in the Psalms, knew. And by the way, Psalm 110 is the most cited Old Testament chapter in the Bible. It is all over the New Testament. You just aren't familiar with verse 4 of it. You're familiar with verse 1 of it, in which Jesus uh, claims as the authority that uh, my Lord said to the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And over and over the New Testament says, see, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. He's sitting at the right hand. Um, but here's verse four of that chapter. So it comes from a very significant chapter. And he's pulling this little verse out to say, Jesus is a priest better than the Levites and from a different order than the Levites. He's from the order of Melchizedek. So then he talks about how Jesus, uh, didn't need to die for himself because he was a perfectly obedient priest. He was an obedient man to the Father. So then we come to verse 11, and it seems like the whole argument stops, and it literally does. 5 verse 11. About this, so this whole Melchizedek guy, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. How did you like that? This letter, the sermon through words on paper are coming to you from one of the guys that apparently know your church. And he's like, hey, guys, I have this amazing, like, God's been telling me all these things I need to tell you. But I'm not going to tell you anything because you guys are stupid and you're not listening and you're dull of hearing. You're hard-hearted. So let's pray and go home. (laughs) That's what he's saying here. And it's like, oh, my goodness. So he's, like, taunting us with this. I have so much to say, but you guys aren't there yet. So, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, baby food, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Grow up, boys and girls. So here's a call to maturity, and this is, um, in a sense, you can kind of see 
this great adventure is on the horizon for them, and they're timidly saying, mm, video games sound more fun. Childish things, right? The whole self-preservation, let me stay in my comfy, cozy cathedral. That's what's going on. And he's saying, wait a minute, there's an adventure here if which you accept When you go the distance, you will be those who return with the power of mentorship and leadership and the ability to help those who are younger in the faith. But you're not there yet. You don't even want anything to do with this right now. So now he's going to launch into this full-on warning, this full-on warning. He's not saying they're here yet, but be careful lest you are here. What's here? Apostasy. Or in other words, turning your back on Jesus and on the faith and saying, done, over, done. So he warns them here now, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's saying, you guys, this is possible. The invitation is still here. Let's move on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance. And he lists these things, which are the elementary things of Christianity. Ironically, we don't even have a very good handle on them in most American churches. But nonetheless, let's move past these and go into maturity, verse 3. And this we will do if God permits for One of the most problematic verses in the Bible, right here. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and who have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So there he describes a Christian, fivefold. They experienced all these things. If you've experienced all these things, And then, verse 6, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Since, two things, they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm, and second, holding him, Jesus, up to contempt. All right. The big problem with this passage isn't So you're Christians, you leave Jesus, but you want to come back. The problem is this word impossible. For it is impossible to restore to repentance someone who's turned their back on Jesus after they have been enlightened in the faith. That's, in a nutshell, what these verses are saying. It is impossible. So... On one hand, we have Hebrews sounding very pessimistic. You know what? You guys, if you're feeling like backsliding, just there's a door, don't come back, because you won't be welcome back. Then on the other hand, we have the Apostle Paul in Romans and other passages where he's talking about um, nothing can separate us from the love of God, and there's this chain of things like you are predestined to be glorified in the Godhead. Like that's he's seeing. He's like, nothing can pull you away from this. It's a done deal. God saved you. You didn't save yourself. And as surely as God saved you, he's not going to let go of you. Then you have Hebrews. But it's impossible to come back. So we're going to just wrestle with the tension and have a good night of sleep so let's move on no no we're not going to do that but we are we are you know there you know i bless bless dr denny he he's like he knew it was coming up he goes hey uh i have this video you should watch it totally nails this thing really well and i had the kind of week where i didn't have time for that so um i didn't get a chance to look at that it would have been so cool like going deep and be like wow is this and that and that but hold on just a second I don't think the point of studying Hebrews is to say, what's the hardest thing to figure out? And let's spend all night doing that. 
I think the point of what we're doing here is why is he saying this threatening, it's impossible to be restored to repentance in the midst of his larger argument that Jesus is our hero and worthy of being followed even into the deepest, darkest, most dangerous places? How does this fit into that? That's my question. That's what I like to ask. So listen, this is what we know. Either Paul's wrong or Hebrews is wrong if we take it that it is impossible to be restored to repentance if you backslide. So I don't think that's what this is saying here, because then you would have to admit that the word of God is not inspired and one of them are wrong, because they're obviously in conflict. I think what he's doing here is he is charging. You have to remember, this is motivational speaking. It's a sermon, and you are trying to motivate your audience to embrace the Christian faith despite whatever persecution comes, and that it's for their benefit for doing so. You're trying to motivate them, and you recognize that they aren't quite mature. They aren't quite on the other end of the journey yet. They're only entering in, and they're scared, and they're thinking about the synagogue, and he has to say literally, just to put it up into their faces, listen sin if you guys don't go on this adventure you are at risk of never returning again and this isn't just the whole oh, persecution i'm gonna hide in the synagogue remember what we said this is a oh, persecution gonna hide in the synagogue we'll deny jesus so you can come in okay i give it all up now you're in this is willful deliberate choosing to turn your back on the son of god not this whole accidental, man, I went to a party, I had a couple too many beers, next thing I knew I was taking ecstasy, and then I was addicted, and then it's been a long road, but finally God met me again, and I'm safe, I'm safe from all that. And like, But the priest said, no, you cannot. Hebrews chapter 6. That's not what that's saying at all. It's saying the people who will not face the long road, the call to adventure, the going the distance, because they want to save their skin and they will deny Jesus to do so, that has no room for repentance. At least this is the way I'm reading it. So if we're going to summarize in a real cliche, you've probably heard this before, but I think this is it. You cannot lose your salvation. Oops, I misplaced it. Oops, I made a mistake. But you can leave your salvation. I don't want it. I've thought it through. I am fully conscious in this decision. I'm done. That's what I see it as saying, given the context of the situation. So what he does then is he encourages them. All right? He doesn't see them as at this point yet. Notice he's been talking in the first person, but when we get to this difficult passage, he talks in the third person. Then they so this isn't his audience. They haven't turned their back on Jesus yet. He's showing them what may happen if they do. Now he comes back to the first person saying, okay, I know we're, we're, we're better than this. Let's go. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And then he mentions how God is seeing everything they're going through. He's not overlooking it. And then verse 12, uh, this is his encouragement. He doesn't want them to be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So you guys just keep on going. You keep on going. Then guess what happens? To further the encouragement after this very uh, soul-shattering threat of apostasy, uh, there's this encouragement in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And Abraham, thus, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
So he brings Abraham in the picture. Why Abraham? Because he was the original guy called out into adventure. He left his home. He went the distance all the way to the promised land of Canaan, a land he's never seen, trusting God that he's going to provide for him. And there he makes it and he receives the promise of God. So guys, remember Abraham, how he was able to push through and make it? You guys can do the same thing. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. We can do it. We can make it. And then further, though, he says that God promised to Abraham. Abraham was able to persevere, not just because he was really strong and like had good boots and tied them really tight. He persevered because God made a promise. So, brothers and sisters, in light of the promises God has made us, can we not persevere despite persecution and suffering and hardship and walking into the unknown? God made a promise and he swore by himself because there's no one greater to swear by. That's what he's saying to encourage them. Then we go down to that part where Jesus has gone all the way into the Holy of Holies, verses 19 and 20. So if that's the one we're following, that's where we're headed. We're in good shape. But now notice in chapter 7, we come full circle. For this Melchizedek. So here we are back to him. Is that, remember he said, I can't tell you anything because you guys are too dumb and immature. And then he threatens them and then encourages them to be like Abraham and keep going. And then he's like, okay, I think you guys got the point. Let's talk about Melchizedek now. You're ready for this. So this is the difficult chapter. Not in the sense chapter 6 is difficult, but in the sense that this is like, you need somebody to help you with the argument. Otherwise you get lost in all the details. So for this Melchizedek, he comes back to him. Talks about how Melchizedek uh, met Abraham. And we had that reading at the beginning of the service. And it says that, uh, verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So this Melchizedek priesthood is eternal. This speaker is seeing for us. Now, See how great this man was, verse 4, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received, uh, who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from the brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. For this man who does not have descent, now he's talking about Melchizedek, from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So if they come, Abraham and Melchizedek meet together one day. Sounds like a joke, right? They meet together. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And his point is, well, the inferior never blesses the superior. It's the superior who blesses the inferior. So we'd see right there that Melchizedek's greater than Abraham, the father of the Hebrew Israel nation. And Abraham, furthermore, gives Melchizedek a tenth of his spoils. This Melchizedek is the man. And then he goes on and says that Abraham, in giving this to Melchizedek, did he not re represent the Levitical priesthood who will come from his own lineage later on? Was it not clear that that Levitical priesthood is bowing down to Melchizedek in and through Abraham? So that, in other words, when we have the Melchizedek priesthood and the Levitical priesthood, we see which one trumps. The Melchizedek priesthood is clearly the superior priesthood. That's what is going on. Now, okay, let's go to verse 15. So now we're going to compare Jesus to this Melchizedek. 
We know Melchizedek's better than Israel's priests. Now, who's Jesus? Well, he's from Melchizedek. Therefore, he's greater than Levitical priests. So this becomes even more evident. Verse 15. When another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. (laughs) In other words, Jesus became a priest according to the order of Melchizedek because of his indestructible life. He was killed but was raised from the dead. This guy is not a Levite, clearly. The Levites all died. And they had to keep reordaining new high priests. Jesus lives forever. He beat death. So once again, verse 17, Psalm 110, verse 4 is cited. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So Jesus is bringing in a new order. And then he talks about how Jesus is brought about by the promise of God. Psalm 110 verse 4 is quoted again in verse 21. This time in its full Verse, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And then according to the order of Melchizedek, isn't cited this time. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So, if your head is spinning by now, all he's doing is he's proving to Jews that Jesus is your hero. And we, who have partnered in to all this stuff, say yes, He's our hero. Let's follow him. So what we have here is this big old sandwich in which we're introduced to Jesus as the priest. He tells the hearers to persevere, keep going. And then he closes all this again with Jesus is your priest. It's this big sandwich. And in the very center of it, it's because top and bottom, Jesus is your high priest. Middle, persevere. You can do this because he did it. He went the distance. And this isn't something you're just risking your life on. You're putting it confidently in this high priest because he lives forever. It's not something that's going to be short-lived or taken out from you all of a sudden. He lives forever. And if we are following this priest and making our relationship with God through this priest, we will live forever. I circled all the times the word forever or an equivalent was used. It, was, it got kind of crazy. But you see, in 7.3, you see forever. In 7.16, indestructible life. Every time Psalms 110 verse 4 is quoted, you are a priest forever. Um, you see, again, uh, verse 21, forever. Verse 24, permanently, forever. And verse 25, always lives. And down at verse 28, forever. Do you get the point? <laughs> I do now. <laughs> Jesus lives forever. And hence, it doesn't matter what the adventure brings to us. We can persevere because there's no end to the help of our priest. And whether we fall off a cliff or not, we usually don't. We will live forever, wherever the adventure takes us. So persevere, brothers and sisters, as he challenged and threatened them to do. Persevere. Because it is those who persevere, don't miss this, it is those who endure, it is those who go the distance all the way through to the end of the road and the end of the adventure, it is those who go on into maturity. 
It is those who can become teachers rather than the learners. Remember his encouragement there in 5, 11, and 12? I could tell you more, but you guys need to be learning when you ought to be teachers by now. It is by going the distance with whatever God gives us that we go from milk to solid food. We begin to learn how to help others because we've received help from our high priest who has gone the distance. This is so, so important that when we enter the adventure of faith, we can, you can, I can, we can go the distance because he went the distance and is helping us along that way. Heroes are not superhuman. We, we've begun in our culture, we have superheroes and we have Batman and Superman. And of course they can kick the bad guys because they've got super capes that do things and vehicles. Listen, our hero did it all as a human. We are mere humans Your leaders within the church, they are mere humans. We can go the distance because our hero has gone the distance. And that's all it takes. It's someone who says, I know how to draw near. 4 verse 16. I know how to draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help me in a time of need. That is the key. To learn how to draw near. It says it there in 4.14. It says it again in 7.19. And it says it one more time in 7.25. That we're to draw near. That's the goal here. So when we choose to draw near, we find help. And then we make it back. We, what we learn is we, when we go the distance, we come back and we're now heroes. God uses us to help the less mature in the faith. And this matters because if we all lived in the safety of our cathedral forever and ever and ever, what you would have is no heroes but a bunch of famous people. People who within the little restricted area fight with each other, climb on top of each other, battle each other for who's the prettiest, who's the richest, who's the smartest, who's the most talented. And all you're going to have is puny little people and they're all going like this. I'm great. Really? What have you done? But when we choose maturity and we choose to persevere and to follow our great high priest wherever the adventure goes, and we learn to draw near and receive help then we too become those heroes who return. We had left that cathedral. We've gone the distance. We've now returned to that cathedral. Nothing wrong with whatever your cathedral is. It is not a sin. It's a sin to stay there. That's what's hurtful to you. We can come back to it then and not be one of those squabbling people who are wrestling for the prettiest and so forth. But we can be that person who comes in knowing who we are in Christ, not having to battle our way for attention, not having to raise our voice to be heard, but just by being there. People like this guy's been somewhere. And I know that he can help me out when I have to step out of the cathedral. He's been there. That's what we need in the church today. We do not need people who are fighting over who has the best doctrines, who's the best speakers, what churches do things rightly and which ones do it falsely. We do not need people who memorize more verses than other people, who has more communion than the others, who has more Bible studies going on, who has more missionaries, whose budgets. Like, we do so many silly things in America to rate our Christianities and our churches and our successes. This is people who've never left the cathedral. They're squabbling over who's famous. 
We need a church over... We need a church full of people who have gone with Jesus the distance, have learned to draw near and receive help, and who come back as mentors and as heroes. This is what we need in this day and age. And I propose to you, it's the lack of people willing to go the distance with Jesus. Is the lack of that is the reason Christianity is losing its influence in our society. You know what? Society's smart enough. They can look at pretenders. People are fighting over who wants to be famous, and they can also recognize heroes. You don't have to be taught the difference, but you do have to be taught how to become that difference. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to. May Jesus give you peace wherever he sends you this week. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm, and may he bring you home Rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you, may he bring you home once again into our doors. Let's pray.